0: The best-selling Compliance Handbook by Compliance Evangelist and Compliance Podcast Network founder Tom Fox has been updated, revised, and improved in its new second edition. This new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and today I am thrilled to have with me Mike Volkoff, a well-known uh, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, thought leader and practitioner in a multidisciplinary compliance practice. Mike, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today.
0: Tom, always, always good to hang out with you. I always have fun and uh, glad to be here.
1: So, Mike, today we're going to take up the role of boards of directors and compliance, and this is something that you have written about, you have talked about, you have thought about, you uh, talked to boards about, and it's something that I think has is, is been on your radar for a long time and, and looking at your latest or maybe over the past several months board posting, or excuse me, blog postings on the obligations of boards, you think it's becoming even more critical. So maybe we could start with, um, what were some of the legal requirements that you've seen increase for boards over the past uh, couple of years?
0: Well, uh, Tom, you're opening up uh, the Pandora's box for me, and I appreciate it, uh, so I'll, I'll walk right into it. Um, this is, and I think it, it this grows out of a frustration of seeing sort of uh, enforcement af- action after enforcement action after enforcement action. And I always ask myself a question, where was the board? What was the board doing and, and how did this happen? And sometimes they even get involved like in VimpleCom FCPA case, they even get involved in the misconduct or a BizJet uh, FCPA case. But even stepping back from those sort of obvious cases, um, what I what concerns me is we've seen a revolution within governance Uh, from below the board in terms of compliance and ethics and all the way up to the CEO. Um, And I think we're due for the revolution uh, in terms of board accountability and governance. And that's coming. And I think we're going to see seismic changes in that. Now, the legal analysis and the legal framework for how we get to that, I'll I'll discuss in a little bit, but I just want to talk a little bit what I sort of see from a uh, 30,000 foot level. Consider this, that this year, uh, one out of 12 companies suffer securities class action suits. Insurance companies end up paying a lot of money for that and insurance companies are getting tired of that. Uh, They also, they used to lobby Congress to reform the securities regulation, you know, the private securities actions. And they've gotten as much as they're going to get in that area and so now i think that ultimately insurance companies the government other pro uh, shareholder interests are going to push boards to become more accountable and better at their jobs it's going to change uh, from a job where you know sort of the old ceos went and sat and you know got a bunch of money and sat on four boards that is going to change and the first and most significant impact i think has been the rising level of risks that companies face let's face it we have climate change cybersecurity, safety environment anti-corruption fraud privacy sexual harassment these are just some of the issues that they have to stay on top of and i think that what we're going to see is that the old defensive model which was built you know with the help of the you know whatever you call them the white shoe New york law firm's defendant defense counsel there, corporate counsel uh built around uh delaware law which was the duty of care the duty of loyalty the duty of good faith uh, and these are well-established principles uh, that have sat there and protected um, uh, protected board members for years and years and i think we're going to and we've already seen the breakdown of that in The breakdown of that is occurring in two ways. One, which we can talk about a little bit later, is the case law in Delaware in terms of class actions relating to board performance and obligations with regard to ethics and compliance. And the second powerful force is the government and the Justice Department in terms of pushing boards in terms of their uh, role in uh, ethics and compliance. But we always start with that duty of care, duty of loyalty, duty of good faith, which is well established, but frankly, behind which uh, boards have hidden for years with the help of good defense, good lawyers.
1: The um, Delaware Supreme Court has really evolved over the past 18 months and specifically around board duties that started in the Caremark case. And there, the, the Delaware Supreme Court said a board has to uh, be a part of the management of a compliance program. They really didn't articulate it much more than that. But over the past 18 months, maybe starting with the Marchant case, which uh, is the Bluebell case, we've had Delaware Supreme Court list an increasing number of responsibilities and literally up to 2020. So I was wondering if you might walk us through kind of the legal obligations from the civil side and this is, I must emphasize, civil side only for uh, responding to shareholder actions. Uh, so we started with Caremark but we're we're really far beyond Caremark and how has that legal obligation then Dovetailed into what the the regulatory obligation or what the Department of Justice has been talking about as well. And that's and, and you know
0: that's that's a really important point. A lot of people thought, and there was a lot up written that you know Caremark was going to get pushed back on out of the Walmart case. That really didn't happen. What it what did happen though was that there were series of cases where the Caremark standard uh, in which the board's performance was challenged let's say for poor oversight and adherence to compliance standards uh, and financial controls uh, you know the caremark standard was pretty easy it was a uh, directors had a duty to exercise oversight and to monitor the co- corporation's operational viability and legal compliance and financial performance but the duty to monitor was narrow liability attaches when the board, quote, utterly fails to implement any reporting or information system or controls, close quote, or if, quote, having implemented such system or controls consciously fail to monitor or oversee its operations. It's almost, it's a pretty easy standard for boards to meet in terms of they're basically, do we have a compliance program? Is it generating information? And we're okay. And the problem that we've seen is that the standards are changing. Marshawn was an important case in the handling of the Bluebell Creamery's uh, food case. Uh, I also like to point to one other case, which was In-Ray Clovis Oncology, which challenged the board performance for failure to monitor the development of a biotech firm's experimental drug, and then allowed it to report inflated performance results. But perhaps, the Bluebell case is the most significant because, first off, it dovetailed with a DOJ criminal case for uh, Bluebell's failure uh, when they had an listeria, a listeria outbreak and caused the death of three individuals. Uh, Bluebell had to recall its products and shut down. They ultimately paid a fine to DOJ of $19.5 million. Um, but The board misconduct was just incredible when you look through it. Uh, Basically, they knew Bluebell, I guess that's all they did was sell ice cream. And they knew that food safety was obviously gonna be a mission critical function. And uh, basically, although there were a number of positive tests, for example, that they were generating for the presence of listeria, the board minutes reflected no board level discussion of listeria moreover the board was never informed about l- listeria or food safety issues generally even as the problem grew they didn't even have a food safety committee even like a committee on the board that would focus on this issue given its importance and uh, that just was incredible so the in the derivative suit that was brought by shareholders uh, against Bluewell um the failure to monitor food safety or even to periodically devote a portion of its meetings to food safety compliance was cited throughout. So no discussion of food safety issues, even after they were getting positive Listeria reports, there was no protocol in place or expectation that management would deliver key food safety compliance reports or summaries. Uh, and uh, the board never required or implemented or oversaw any attempt to remediate the deficiencies that were being identified uh, at Bluebell's manufacturing plants. I mean, this was a wholesale failure. The thing about it uh, is that even these were devastating facts, but some of the language used in the case I can see is going to make this case applicable to risks uh, situations in other areas data breaches, uh, environmental concerns, anything that's a big risk that should have been dealt with, boards are gonna be in trouble if they don't build what, in, here, in the Bluebell case, they should have had protocols for safety uh, and whatnot. One, let me just mention, because I think it's also an important case, uh, Clovis Oncology, where Uh, The board members were actually sophisticated in supervising uh, clinical trial data, and they deviated from the protocol, and they sort of improperly calculated the efficacy of a drug that they were developing for cancer. And uh, they didn't disclose that, and ultimately, they were... the company collapsed because it didn't work or the product didn't develop and then everybody was left with lawsuits on their hands. But I just wanna tell you in this case, in the challenge to the on the Caremark standard, the language that was used by the court is going to be very helpful for a lot of plaintiffs because the court described the directors in the Clovis Oncology case as acting, quote, with hands on their ears to muffle the alarms Close quote. And this to me is really the the important language. The board must exercise a good faith effort to implement an oversight system which, quote, entails a sensitivity to compliance issues intrinsically critical to the company, close quote. So to me, that means compliance interests issues intrinsically critical. Well, that's gonna be your risk assessment. What are your risks as a company? And if we don't have an oversight system that is commensurate or tailored to that risk, I think these cases are starting to set up uh greater litigation in this area. Uh and I know there have been a few other cases, uh, but I didn't, you know, I didn't want, want to flag all of them. But I do think that these two are really important cases.
1: Mike, uh, that was the civil side of things but there's also been an evolution in the thinking of the Department of Justice. And I wanted to raise two cases with you and uh, get your take on them. The first one was Goldman Sachs, where uh, as part of its remediation and indeed settlement with the government, it sought to claw back certain uh, bonus payments made and compensation payments made to executives who were either involved in the 1MDB scandal or uh, had oversight. Uh, over it as part of their role as executive in Goldman Sachs. That's number one. And then number two was a case that uh, literally came out about 10 days ago involving Boeing. And there as a part of the settlement, the uh, settled via a deferred prosecution agreement, Boeing created a product safety committee. Uh, Now we can perhaps talk at a later time how inane it was that Boeing did not have a product safety committee on the board because they make products that when they fail are catastrophic failures. But they put a product safety committee on the board and part of the remit was product safety, part of it was uh, remit overseeing government relations and government applications and licenses. So now we've had, over the past three or four months, two uh, huge Uh, settlements out of the fraud section, Goldman Sachs, FCPA, Boeing fraud, where the government either agreed with the companies creating a uh, committee on the board or directed the company to create a, um, a board committee dealing with high risks for those companies. And I was wondering what your thoughts were around the DOJ evolution and how, if you see this really dovetailing with what you saw and described on the civil side of things from the Delaware Supreme Court.
0: Well, that, uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of DOJ has now brought, I think uh, the full, well, maybe not the full power that they can bring, but they have definitely brought uh, some higher levels of scrutiny here and they're holding boards uh, accountable. And I think it's been through the years as they've, you know, ramped up enforcement, not just an FCPA, but, uh, you know, auto safety cases, the, uh, obviously the Boeing case as well. Um, uh, and I think they're recognizing um, and maybe part of it is just uh, leadership thought and they follow all of that as well. And it, it gets incorporated into some of their ideas, but, Let's take take a look from the guidance that they've put out in ethics and compliance and evaluation of uh, corporate compliance programs. Uh, We definitely saw in 2019 uh, the emergence of something new and significant, which was uh, the emphasis on culture. And uh, they have always pushed boards, but they have now basically said, look, boards, look, uh, senior uh, management, you guys are responsible for this. You're responsible for your culture. You're responsible for your compliance program and um, in the proper oversight of it. And I think this is a uh, a big deal because this is a much more powerful incentive for boards to get it together. And we have sort of the slow-moving train with uh, Delaware and the courts there, but this is a faster-moving train. And DOJ has a lot of power here, and I think they've increased board responsibility. I think they've built this off of, um, you know, even going back to the sentencing guidelines, there are still sort of there's language in there uh that sort of mandates this a little bit more but i think doj now is sort of on the ethical culture bandwagon and they hold the board and senior management accountable for that and so the question they're asking now like the question i always ask in enforcement action is where was the board? Where was senior management? What was the board doing with regard to compliance? And you know, we've also seen an increased um, awareness of the issue of root cause analysis. And what's interesting uh, in the Boeing case is that Boeing had a pretty sophisticated root cause analysis program that they did through their you know internal complaints, internal investigations, but nonetheless was defective in this case and. Uh, it seems to me like a pretty basic requirement that they should have had a product safety committee. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the collateral litigation that's going on, but I'm sure that uh, part of their answer to justice is also going to serve them in the collateral litigation as well. But going back to your point about accountability, I think we've seen two cases with high level malfunctioning. Goldman Sachs is perhaps, in my view, is still the most important FCPA case that was ever brought. It was right in the core of the purpose of the FCPA and it was just rampant, blatant corruption. Uh, I think DOJ was shocked at the um, recordings that they ultimately secured from uh, high-level senior management at which um, people there were Uh, aware of the misconduct. It was reported to them, but they didn't do anything about it. So now I think uh, the clawback, uh, and one just brief aside on the clawback, Gary Cohen, the uh, head of Goldman Sachs, uh, who was also at, um, uh, in the Trump administration, uh, the former president's administration, um, is the only individual fighting the clawback, of course. Um, But uh, all the others have agreed to the clawback uh, in terms of Goldman Sachs. And frankly, I, in the scheme of things, I still think it's a slap on the wrist uh, to the amount of the clawback, given the amount of money that Goldman Sachs, senior management and board get paid. Uh, but nonetheless, I think there's a valuable lesson here learned from the DOJ is going to push accountability here. And had Goldman Sachs not done the clawback, I wonder what would have happened in terms of the ultimate resolution of the case but those two cases are critical now for holding boards accountable and for looking at the reforms that are done now boeing got a lot of credit for its reforms at the board level on down throughout the compliance program and i think that people are going to be looking into compliance and the role of the board and senior management and interactions and uh, information that's flowing in that way, and that's going to become uh, even more important.
1: Mike, if I could move now to the issue of a compliance committee on the board or a compliance resource on the board, what are your thoughts on, should there be a compliance committee separate and apart from the audit committee, um, and then what about having a, a specifically designated compliance expert, whether it's uh, you or me or a former chief compliance officer or someone else who's a subject matter expert?
0: Well, that's, you know what, that's a really uh, interesting issue. And I think what we're looking at now is the, the DOJ's evaluation factors ask three important questions with regard to board oversight. What compliance expertise has been available on the board of directors? have the board of directors and or external auditors held executive or private sessions with the compliance and control functions? And more importantly is the third question, what types of information have the board of directors and senior management examined in their exercise of oversight in the area in which the misconduct occurred or you know, in terms of looking at a potential violation? Uh, I think um, number one, there's no doubt that audit committees often are so focused on Sarbanes-Oxley financial reporting issues that ethics and compliance sort of always comes at the end of the agenda. It's commonly been, I mean, this is pretty funny. It's, well, it's not funny. It's actually a little sad too, but almost always uh, compliance has to come in, make a presentation, and it's right before the board is ending its meeting and going to go have drinks and dinner. And you can imagine the pressure that the compliance people feel to okay shorten it up. Let's go. We got to we got to roll here. And that is a common uh, complaint that I've heard from compliance uh, people that we work with uh, that the boards just don't spend enough time with it. They're more than willing, and many of the board members are finance, you know, former finance people, former CEOs. They love to look at that stuff and make sure Sarbanes Oxley is complied with, their financial reporting obligations are carried out. And then at the end, okay, what about compliance? And that's why I think there has to be a separate compliance committee. That's why we need to have um, greater expertise on the board. Uh, At least one person who has had prior experience in general in compliance and is familiar with it, those are critical things. And frankly, I would make them the compliance committee chair and make them responsible for the oversight function and let them carry it out on a day-to-day basis. I think we'll see that first in the regulated industries and you already see it in somewhat, uh, In but manufacturing industries and other things like that, they'll be slower to go, come to this, but I do think it's something that's coming uh, and it's already started um, because what's happening from the enforcement side is they're always asking the question, what information did the board get? What information did it request? What information did it review? And why didn't the board learn of this potential violation or potential misconduct? Uh, And did they ask the right questions to meet their duty of care in that sense?
1: Mike, let me turn to uh, probably the most difficult or one of the most difficult questions a board is going to face when it comes to a violation, and that's the decision to self-disclose. Um, you've you've helped guide boards through this question. How do you help a board understand their risks and help them understand whether or not they should uh, self-disclose? And then after you finish that, if you could talk about if you do have a catastrophic compliance failure that has risen to the level of the board that that they brought you in to self help them understand what to do and you have made the decision to self-disclose what's the board's role in an investigation of such such a matter
0: well those are those are really those are money issues those are big issues Um, i do think that the department pounded the drums for many years on come in and disclose come in and disclose you'll get credit you'll get credit you'll get credit and you know it that we went through the FCPA pilot program and now we're at this corporate enforcement policy which applies across the board. And uh, it gives the chance to the company if they voluntarily disclose, if they remediate uh, and, um, and if they cooperate in the investigation, the chance to earn a not, well actually a presumption of a uh, declination, uh, meaning that they're not going to uh, be criminally prosecuted and that's a valuable thing there's no doubt about that but the process of getting there is very costly and um, what I I have been asked the question even when let's say I'll give you a hypothetical I've been given I've been asked the question we found 10 bribes that were paid for thousand uh, dollars and then you know a month and then it was stopped and the question was well should we disclose that and the question, and then my answer to that is, let's balance the benefits versus the risks. Once you agree to voluntarily disclose, you're either all in or you're not, you know, or all out. It's a, it's once you cross the threshold of DOJ, or certain regulatory agencies, you have lost control. They now can tell you what to do, what to investigate, how much to investigate, and they'll ultimately negotiate with you, but pretty much tell you how much you're gonna have to pay and what is gonna be the punishment. So the alternative to that is what I would call sort of the uh, high-minded non-disclosure route where you will do all the work that's necessary to investigate, to remediate by firing people, disciplining other people, and by building in enhanced controls uh, to make sure that this never happens again. Um, My general rule is that when the misconduct involves one or two, you know, a few countries or it is relatively contained and is not significant, that uh, self-disclosure may not be in the interest of the company. Um, On the other hand, uh, when you have a more pervasive scheme that whatever misconduct it is uh, and it's pretty significant and it cuts across, let's say, it's pervasive throughout the organization and it goes into multiple countries, then you may be in a situation where it does make sense to do it. But I think there's a lot more calculation being done by boards and by senior management CEOs and whatnot around that question. Now, what happens if you don't disclose, you remediate, you fix everything, you document everything you did, and then when, let's say DOJ finds out through a whistleblower or somebody lets them know somehow, Uh, I would walk in with uh, my head held high and say, we found this, we didn't think it rose to the level of a voluntary disclosure strategically, but here's everything that we did. And hold your head up high and say, this is how we fixed the problem. This is what we did, we fired these people. In other words, comply with the guideline, the corporate enforcement policy, all the way up to the voluntary disclosure requirement. Now, if you decide to go the route of the voluntary disclosure, this is where your audit committee or compliance committee the chair is going to play a critical role the ceo may be involved or may have known or should have known about the conduct and so what's going to happen is the audit committee and we get into the legal game here because the company will have lawyers and sometimes committee members or the committee itself will hire a separate set of lawyers to watch over the investigation that's done by the company lawyers. Well, it can get pretty messy in that situation, because, but what's really critical is to have the support of the audit committee, and sometimes they will decide to set up a special committee uh, and appoint members of it, uh, and have that committee with all the discretion, all the responsibility with a budget to make sure that this, uh, this investigation gets carried out. It's absolutely critical that the board runs the show if there's any hint or any suggestion that the CEO or senior management may have been involved and when I use involved I mean not just engaging in misconduct but failing to conduct proper oversight of, their comp- of the company to prevent uh, such misconduct. So the boards here are in a high-risk situation. There's gonna be litigation, there's gonna be securities litigation, and there's potential DOJ, SEC, or other regulators, uh, regulatory enforcement actions. So that's absolutely critical.
1: So, Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you for visiting with me on some of your thoughts around board, the role of the board and compliance. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, Please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.